Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of Amplify Archaeology. Now, as I always say, archaeology is an extremely broad church. At one end of it, you've got things like reconstruction drawings and art. At the other end of it, you've got kind of pure science, if you like. But whether you're at either pole, archaeology, in essence, is a form of storytelling. And one archaeologist, my friend Paul Duffy, joins us to tell us how he's taken that storytelling a step further. He's written a book, and it's called Run With The Her." Hunt with the Hound, and I'm a good way into the book. I'm really enjoying it, Paul. You're very welcome to join us here on Amplify Archaeology. Thanks a million for joining me. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Neil. Delighted to be here. Yeah, Paul, you've done done an awful lot of really interesting and exciting excavations around Dublin in particular in recent years. And, like, looking at kind of some of those new discoveries because Dublin in some ways it's one of those places it's absolutely steeped in history isn't it like but as you kind of walk around the city today because you've kind of seen under its skin so to speak do you have a different view of Dublin than you did previously? Yeah very much so Uh, it's like the x-ray specs kind of effect so um the more, yeah, look, I've been very lucky in uh, the sites that I've been working on over the last six years, seven years, really, in town. Um, we've had a really good run of going from, from site to site. And there's been a lot of different projects. You know, there's different scale of things we're doing, monitoring, excavation, or even um, desktop assessments for various different projects. So with each project, I suppose, you're putting the microscope on a particular corner or a parcel of Dublin. And without fail, there's always something intriguing, no matter where you look, you know. There's such time depth, as you, as you kind of alluded to there at the start. So, yeah, I do get a lot of opportunity to be walking from side to side and the picture kind of building up. And obviously, the kind of the baseline is that brilliant map that Harold Clark drafted all those years ago. And, um, yeah, kind of peeling back the layers and, you know, Whoa, <laughs> whoa to anybody who happens to be walking around with me because I just tend to go off on monologues um, at various points. You know, we're passing into the wall town here now. Do you know, this is where the, the, the Liffey Foreshore used to come up to, or, you know, this is where the bridge was going across, all that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it, it, it is great. I and mean, it's, it's a bit of a privilege, all right, to get that sort of insight into it. And, you know, with, with some of these kind of recent things, and that's one of the exciting things about Dublin, I suppose, there's always construction happening. There. There's always kind of movement. It's a very dynamic city in that way. So new things are being unearthed all the time. Um, can you share any kind of uh, ways that our perspectives of the development of the city, and particularly kind of medieval Dublin would be an area of, of real interest for you, do we have any kind of new evidence that's come to light in, in the last kind of few years that was either perhaps surprising or that's reinforced our past belief about how the city developed? Yeah, I mean, just there's, there's sort of <laughs> seismic uh, findings coming out nearly every year. And I suppose there's a lot of archaeologists working in town, some fairly big results, such as, you know, Alan Hayden's um, 
findings there last year and the year before around the Dove Lane, um, which is pretty much ground zero for Dublin City, and other excavations, such as um, Ashton Collins is down in the Coombe, where she found the terrace or excavated the terrace of her burner Norse houses. But for, from my own perspective, I suppose what's becoming clearer to me over the last number of years is previously there was a kind of view that Dublin was quite a compact city uh, right up until the advent of the, the Anglo-Normans really and that the expansion maybe was due a lot to these large monastic um, foundations that were sited around the edges of the, the walled town. But we're getting a suite of really interesting dates from sites that are quite a bit further out than than that, you know, core. So one of the excavations that we we had was up on Thomas Street, and it was just on the edge of Thomas's Abbey, uh, the Abbey of St. Thomas the Martyr, which gives Thomas Street its name, named for Thomas Beckett, um, the, the, you know, the assassinated Archbishop of Canterbury. And we found the, the graveyard associated with the Abbey, which was purportedly, it was supposed to have been founded in 1177, which was very clear documentary evidence that Henry II founded the Abbey as a sort of a reparation to keep the Pope happy because, you know, he was sort of implicated in the murder. But um, anyway, we, we excavated a lot of burials there. and much. The majority of the burials were actually first-generation Anglo-Normans, uh, well, from that period, let's say, you know, in the first 50 years of the colony. But there were, um, there, there was a good smattering of, fairly early burials, like burials that were straddling that Anglo-Norman period, but burials that were clearly pre-Anglo-Norman and right back into, you know, there's some ranges there that were going right back into the, the later 10th century. Definitely 11th century burials and then earlier 12th century burials, which is fascinating because we've no documentary records for any kind of foundations there. Um, I suppose to situate people, if you've ever come into Dublin along, uh, Thomas Street, it's around the area of NCAD or St. Catherine's Church there, that kind of area. So you're a good bit outside the city walls. And there's been other findings as well, old um, dates, uh, very early dates for houses from beyond the Thomas Street as well. So obviously there was something happening there, something of a religious nature, but also, you know, settlement. So that sort of pushes, that extends the, you know, I suppose the suburban aspect of the city. Uh, quite far out in the pre-known period. And then the other big excavation was the sort of Andrew Street, Stephen Street thing that made um, made headlines a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, where we had um, found sunken floored Hibernian or structure of um, later 11th century date and the Church of St. Peter on the hill, which was thought to be around there somewhere um, so there were two, two really, really big findings, and we we got some early dates as well. What I say early, we got by Bernard North dates, obviously for the, the house and for a big enclosing ditch, and the ditch around there it was enclosing the the house and I suppose what would have been a suburb, a southern suburb. So we've got another sort of suburban um, evidence for another large suburban activity, and then I mentioned Ashton Collins is. Uh, Terrace of Houses further out again, down by St. Patrick's Cathedral. So you're starting to get a picture of something much more widespread. And when you put that in the context of, say, Oxmanstown across the river as well, 
you know, plenty of um, 12th century um, and even later 11th century dates for structures and, and things around there. So it was a big place. It was bigger than we give a credit for, maybe. So there's a lot more urban sprawl than we'd ever considered around Dublin. And those findings around Thomas Street is kind of interesting as well because, of course, you know, pre-Norman, that's high, that is, again, kind of re-emphasising the nature of the interweaving of those kind of Scandinavian and Irish cultures in a way because if they're buried in a Christian context, if they're buried in a Christian kind of way, it's showing that these people who are descendants to some degree, most likely, of, of Scandinavian you know, exactly. Vikings. Uh, yeah, yeah, to yeah. be honest, that's a bit of a rabbit hole I'm currently uh, yeah. sort of down because th- there is a big question mark about pre-Viking Dublin and there's a few scanty references to this Dublin enclosure, which is you know, there was some kind of foundation there. Importance of it, we're not too sure of at the moment, but there's been a couple of locations suggested for it. Um, and what what I find really curious about it all is, so, you know, the Vikings did what they did. They came in, and as we see at places like Nindukal and Woodstown, all these places, they come in, they're attracted by a harborage, and if there's a, if there's a monastic or um, some kind of a foundation there already that they can co-opt, I suppose, or <laughs> brutalize it at the outset and then maybe co-opt and use as a trade center or somewhere to uh, as a base of operations. That's a big draw for them. So um, the Dublin enclosure, I suppose people have been um, theorizing that that's just at the back of Dublin Castle. Um, I suppose what I'm trying to say is so there's a number of pagan burials, let's say, from that time on, from um, the late 700s onwards. Um, so the really fascinating thing for me is you know, that that change to, Christian, to, to Christianity comes in probably in a very organic way over the following couple of hundred years. But on current sort of uh, evidence, when you're looking at Dublin City itself in the year 1000 AD, we can't really say for certainty that there's any churches there. Okay, so that's 1080. We don't know. We can't say hand on heart that there's definitely a functioning church in the, the city. But if you fast forward to 1180, Dublin has the largest concentration of churches anywhere on the island of Ireland. That's very interesting, isn't it? And it makes you wonder about that kind of early phase of Christianity as well, and, and particularly in a place which wasn't controlled by Christian kings or rulers or elite, mm. that was it almost like those kind of early years in the Christian church in Tolt where people are kind of gathering in people's houses and, you know, safe houses almost and that yes, sort yeah. of thing. You know, uh, maybe it's not formalised. in the. It, 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 maybe people are Christians, but they're not kind of formalised or granted the land or given the permission to build churches in that sort of yeah. sense, or it's not safe. No, yeah, we have to point to the documentary evidence. You know, it's not great for that period. So there could well have been churches. There could well have been churches there. Uh, the Dove Lane Church may have been functioning all the way through. That's a possibility. But uh, to go to that leap from sort of 
zero to hero in a hundred years uh, is quite impressive. It's very interesting uh, for sure, and like I, I suppose, like you know, th- this is something I could talk about all day for sure because it's so interesting. It's those kind of it's those threads that you you wish you could pull. But one of the interesting things about Dublin, as I say, is it's such a dynamic place that the chances are that eventually we might find a site that could give us that clue because it's a place that's changing so much. Um, but you've set your story a, a, a little bit later. And like, I I honestly find the, um, I've been really lucky. I've had the opportunity to write fictionalized stories based on archaeological evidence in the series of audiobooks that we did for Transport Infrastructure Island. It's something I really find it an enjoyable challenge. You know, you, you're kind of using these pieces like a jigsaw almost, but it's a, from reading the book and, and I'm a good few chapters in now. It's a challenge that you've more than risen to. I think it's really interesting. It's an exciting story. I mean, but when you're using the kind of archaeological and historical evidence and all of that, how did you kind of approach using these different forms of evidence to tell a narrative, to tell a story? Um, well, I suppose firstly, it kind of ties into to your work on this nail and the TII's, I suppose, relatively brave sort of approach to, to commission that work that you did uh, on sort of a fictionalized narrative based on the archaeological results, which I think is, is really excellent, but it's something that's rare and sort of, you know, it raises the hot eyebrow uh, in academia, I find. But really, as, as you know yourself, um, and myself are probably involved in a lot of um, well work projects where we there be um, reconstruction drawings commissioned. So if you're given a brief to um, to represent a site at a particular time, you know you, you kind of realise pretty quickly that the the hard evidence can only take you so far. You have to create a whole landscape um, structures. You know, a diorama, scenes, people, uh, material culture, but you might be going off a few finds or a few ditches or some post holes. So, with that level of sort of, I suppose, speculation, creativity, and uh, um, I suppose, yeah, like that, that level of creativity and storytelling that you get in a, a reconstruction drawing, it's accepted across the board in academia. You know, you see it in, in Museums across the world, you see these kind of illustrations used in um, textbooks and everything like that. And I think they really engage with the public, they really engage with people. So, what you've done, and I suppose what I'm trying to do in, in a way, is just a textual version of that. So, um, and I think that that is as valid uh, a way into the past for, for, for the public. As, as a visual image or any other type of, of interpretation, which is effectively what we do. Uh, as you mentioned, sort of we're telling stories, we're interpreting the evidence for, for people. So I suppose that was the way I approached uh, the writing of the book. Um, it was obviously a bit of a passion project from the start, something I've always wanted to do. I do a bit of creative writing, or always have done a little bit of creative writing. Um, and to be honest, I'd always kept the archaeology slash history separate from the creative writing and what actually happened with this project was I've been writing a lot about um, Hugh de Lacey 
in the south of France. So this is the, the Earl of Ulster. It's the, the second Hugh de Lacey in an Irish context. And uh, it's a story I kind of stumbled across uh, nearly just about 20 years ago now, sort of scary to say, but I spent a year abroad as an undergraduate in Toulouse, France, uh, studying over there. And as a sort of a mini dissertation, I was looking into the, the, the siege of Toulouse and specifically the kind of defences that were around the town during this uh, crusade against the Qatars uh, in the early 13th century. And when I was looking through the sources, these epic poems, the name Hugh de Lacey kept cropping up. And, and you know, looking at the footnotes and the, the French kind of commentators and writers were referring to this English knight, Hugh de Lacey. And I was just wondering, uh, being an undergrad, not a huge breadth of reading, you know, could it be the Hugh de Lacey we know from Ireland? And pulling that thread basically resulted in years of kind of researching, presenting, publishing academically on the story, which is, it's a fantastic story. It's not the story in the book uh, that we're discussing, but it's a story I set out to try and tell. And initially I thought, you know, this could really, really go well with a popular history treatment. And maybe to enliven that, much in the way we're talking about the uh, reconstruction drawings, I can insert some passages of prose in there to sort of set the scene, to, to bring the reader into it, into it a bit more immediately. And then the, the story shift that I found, I had to go back to, to create the backstory, the contextualized the Lacey's, the Irish connection. And then, yeah, the, the fiction aspect of it just started to take over until after a while, I, I just went with it. And it, was, um, it was great. It was really enjoyable. It was like taking breaks off. I just really, you know, get creative with it and uh, see where the story went from there. No, that's it. I mean, it, it, it's it's good fun, and and as you say, it's kind of. Um, I think you know a lot of. I always I always say like, and, and I'm incredibly biased, right? Archaeologists are generally good company, right? It's <laughs> generally kind of good people to hang out with, and the reason is, I think. As the reason we all get into archaeology to one extent or another is because we're interested in people, right? And I think, you know, when you... It, you can kind of keep that uh, an academic remove, so to speak, and, and try to deal with, it, like, the only factual evidence and stuff. But there's always a little... I always find there's always a piece of the brain thinking about, well, what was that person's day like? Do you know what? What was the lived experience like? And once you start thinking down those lines, it gets really exciting to kind of um, tell that broader, bigger story. And, and I'm really excited that you've done it here with this one. And, you know, we, we, we touched on kind of some of your influences there. And I think, you know, the entirety of Ireland's past, when you stand back and look at it, it's all interesting. You know, that's one of the challenges I always find is if I was to write a fictional book, what century would I pick? What was it about the 12th century that drew it? Was it the fact that you were so interested in De Lacey and it, it was kind of like a direct line to it? Or was it a kind of period that you felt there's a lot of rich kind of material here to play with? Yeah, it was a bit of both, really. To be honest, yeah, I was, I was I had my head in this De Lacey story for years, you know. And, um, so I, I suppose it gave me a familiarity with the surrounding political situation a bit more in Ireland than in, in in the rest of Europe. So I was more comfortable there. And um, then really, yeah, just 
to, I suppose I should say the novel is set at the, the point of the, the Anglo-Norman invasion. Um, so, you know, there's this huge drama in there. There's, there's amazing characters and there's some really great set pieces as well to write to. Um, one in particular that I just could not, it just had this gravity that I, I couldn't avoid. It was just, the, the whole story was getting dragged towards this encounter on the Hill of Ward, you know, the, on Clopton. It's just such, so you've got Hugh DeLacy, the, the elder, face to face with Turner O'Rourke. And when you, when you look at these two individuals in, um, in how to describe them and the lives that they had, you know, Geraldus Cambrensis describes Hugh DeLacy as this broad man, this really powerfully built man covered, <laughs> covered in hair. <laughs> and that he has one side of his face is virtually melted from, from a, uh, from some accident that happened to him when he was younger. So just, just this terrifying sort of, <laughs> you know, prospect. And he's standing on one side of the hill and he's at a party in commas or ambush, depending on which uh, version of the uh, you know, events you want to believe. And standing across from him is Tiernan O'Rourke, you know, the most sort of combative, um, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of bellicose, character from that period in Irish history. But he also has this amazing um, face, <laughs> which has been, he's survived an assassination attempt. That's put out one of his eyes and he has all these stab wounds on his head. So like that, th those kind of visual cues there, you know, it's just that's brilliant. brilliant. It's that, just, like, that's just a joy to get stuck into it is. Uh, Game of Thrones has nothing on Irish history. <laughs> you know, these figures are unreal. Uh, they are, yeah. um, and, and you just mentioned him, the uh, Geraldus Gambrensis. You know, he, he's one of kind of, um, I suppose, the big sources for these kind of early interactions between the Normans uh, and Ireland. And he writes quite uh, descriptive, as you say, about Hugh de Lacey. He's not very kind about Hugh de Lacey. He doesn't like him very much. Um, he was a man who, uh, Geraldus Cambrensis, he wasn't shy of a little bit of fiction himself around the edges. Um, how much did you kind of draw on the energy of some of Geraldus's kind of explanations for things? Do you read Geraldus now and you're like, oh, he's just an arch propagandist? <laughs> to be trusted or, or do you see that he has some sort of value oh it definitely has value i mean you know obviously i have to take everything he says with um, some degree of skepticism but um it's just amazing to have that source you know and you, you know you have to counterpoint you've, you've the annals as well from the irish perspective and you have uh, the song of dermot and the earl so there's a lot of sources you can cross-reference and come to some kind of truth but in terms of writing the, I should say that the, the book, it's a novel, it's fiction, but I did approach it as you, as you would approach a reconstruction drawing. So every time a character walks into a room or every time a character is in a particular situation, it was really great thought experiment just saying, well, what actually, you know, what's he going to sit on? You know, down to the sort of the, the mechanics of a daily scene. Um, and uh, I suppose I've been, given that I'm an archaeologist, um, and I suppose I've written some history, I've done some research in history, but I'm not a historian. I wouldn't class myself as a historian in that sense. So I've given more um, weight probably to the material culture. So for me, it's really important to get that right, but also the dynamics between people, the social sort of hierarchy, 
and trying to get into somebody's headspace in that period of time. But in doing so, I've taken a few liberties with the timeline. Okay, so maybe for a historian, some sacrilegious, um, you know, uh, tinkering with, with the past. But for me, I was more interested in getting the, the tone and the feel and the flow of the story. Now, I don't see them as major sins against history. I might have shifted a few events that, that happened in 1174 to 1172, for example, that kind of thing. And put, in, uh, put a fairly hefty disclaimer at the back of the book, which explains all of these choices. And, you know, but put, we, um, with archaeology, kind of, we used to carbon dates, which always have a kind of in and around kind of caveat at the end of everything. So, yeah, that's fine, I think. But I think one of the things that's really interesting about it, and your descriptions, you know, you can it really comes across, I think, that approach that you, you're thinking about what are the touchstones that we definitely know? What What is the material culture that informs this scene? And, and it creates quite a picture. And the picture that it creates is an island that at one time is quite familiar and some of the kind of, you know, people will pick up a picture of it that won't be kind of too strange in some ways, but in other ways it's quite different and atmospheric and like things like, you know, the, is it the cranes wandering around and, and things like that? Yeah. The bird, which, like, we don't we don't think of cranes walking around, but they were like a common enough feature in high status, you know, settlements and stuff. So those little details, I think, will I, I I think anyone reading this will get a much kind of richer view of what early medieval Ireland and, and or kind of coming into medieval Ireland, what it actually looked like and felt like at the time, which is good because I quite often think that when people think around this period, uh, when they're not thinking of the slightly later bit of all the giant stone castles, they tend to think of like mud and drizzle and like, you know, that sort of thing, like perhaps a rickety wooden fence around a ring fort, like, you know, it's all quite miserable. but I think this kind of really gets across some of the, the other aspects of life in, in the period, which is really effective and, and quite a picture. Um, looking at the people themselves, Paul, I mean, I suppose like we'd, we'd be quite familiar and people might have seen shows, whether it's like the Vikings or um, the Bernard Cornwell's one, which was recently on Netflix, The Last Kingdom. And they're all kind of roughly in the sort of ball back and, and then more kind of fictionalized fantasy ones like Game of Thrones, which obviously draws a lot from Irish, Scottish and, and English history and stuff. So um, a lot of the perspectives in these stories tend to be, if you take Bernard Cornwell's, for example, that's coming from like a fairly elite level, isn't it? It's coming from generally like a warlord or something yeah. along those kind of lines. The where I'm up to in the book at the moment is largely driven through the eyes of a slave, Albrick. Uh, might be pronouncing that wrong. That's how it kind of sounds in my head. That's how I'm saying. <laughs> That's quite a different perspective. Um, why did you kind of lean towards that sort of view of the world rather than coming up? Because that story of the Norman Conquest, it's always about these big guys going in, you know, with massive egos and armies and power. And, you know, it's one guy against yeah. another. Um, but you went from this kind of slightly different perspective. What led you to that? Well, I suppose 
the advice that I always got about writing a book was write the book that you love to read. And I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think for a lot of archaeologists, people really interested in history, engaged in that kind of thing. When you're looking at these productions, like The Last Kingdom, or like, is there anything like that? There's a, yeah, there's an engaging story there. But really, we're probably more interested in lingering on the scenery in the background. We're trying to, you know, look at, you're kind of looking in the corners of the screen to see, you know, the sort of more day-to-day stuff, which is what we find as archaeologists. And it's where the more interesting human stories are, I think. So obviously the, the big players and, and the, the main stories are, are interesting. And there is a fair bit of that in this book, but it's, as I said, told from the, the, the eyes of a slave. But what I always found very fascinating about the whole Anglo-Norman conquest period was that if you read the annals, the Irish annals, um, it's full of people who are, it's full of clerics who are sort of, you know, throwing their, their arms up to heaven and saying, oh, this is a divine judgment and it's been visited upon us because of all the slaves we've taken from England. And that's something, they, there's a direct correlation between, you know, they, they see the, the, the arrival of the Anglo-Normans as God's punishment for slavery that was still going on. And this is mirrored on the, the English side of things. There's bishops who are, uh, you know, they're reading sermons against people who are selling their their children or their relatives into slavery to Irish, to, to Irish people, or to Irish warlords or whatever it might have been. So it's kind of attested to on both sides of the, the sea. So I just I just found that an amazing kind of perspective of what was the Anglo-Norman conquest like for somebody who was a slave or who, who used to live over there or who was, you know, forcibly transported across the sea. Um, so the Albrecht, the principal character of the book, is sort of his first generation, is the son of one of these um, slaves who was taken off, let's say, in the, you know, the early 12th century. And he's grown up in Ireland, but he has the, the Norman language. So he just he has that perspective, the foot in both camps. Um, you know, it's... Yeah, it permits him to kind of look at, at things. And he, I suppose he's yearning for this. Um, he's hearing about the coming of the norms. They're getting closer and closer. And he's really yearning for it on one hand. But on the other hand, he's not really sure of his place or how he's going to be received or that kind of thing. So, And then it gives us the opportunity to see life from uh, you know the day-to-day without necessarily having to... I, I suppose I didn't fancy the prospect of entering into what was... A pretty toxic worldview uh, that the aristocratic you know, worldview at the time, be it uh, Norman, be it Gaelic, and um, for the number of years I was I was working on this book. So, yeah, and I suppose one more thing I'll say about it: it's, it also allows me to sidestep a little bit the old nationalist narrative as well. It's not just a straight. England bashing Ireland and a lot of those shows that you mentioned there's always this proto-nationalist or proto-patriotic feel to them where the world wasn't like that back then the world was you had your maybe you had some allegiances to your family and the people immediately around you but you know it wasn't the it wasn't beating the breast over the tricolor <laughs> on the, the Hill Award you know no, that's it. That's it. That's a really good point, and I do think it is an interesting perspective because, again, I think this 
aspect of Ireland's history, that kind of, it's a real transitional period in, in many ways, kind of the 12th century and, and coming into the 13th century. Everything changes from all these new religious orders coming in to the way that there's, society starts to structure differently. And slavery, which was around in Ireland before the Vikings, you know, yeah. uh, the Vikings kind of juiced it up a bit, I suppose, and accelerated things to quite a big level. But they weren't the only people doing it. It was part of Irish life. And then that kind of societal structure changes quite dramatically in, in a relatively short period of time. And it makes you think about people who who um, lived through those kind of days. So I think it's a, a really interesting kind of perspective to pick and, and one that is more interesting than just another kind of, you know, everybody going slashing at each other with swords and, you know, last man standing wins kind of approach, yeah. which, which you get quite often. Uh, not that I'm averse to some of those books, I kind of enjoy them too, you know, but this is, yeah. this is good and different. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> and I suppose, you know, we kind of touched on it a couple of times, and, and like when you're writing a, a fictional novel like this, you know, and you're featuring kind of real people, now, Albrick is, is a fictional person, but a lot of these other people are, are real, if you like. And you're basing it very clearly on real evidence. Um, how do you feel about that kind of almost the dance between, on one side, complete historical accuracy and archaeological accuracy, and on the other end of it, pure storytelling? Because it's, you know, it, it freer in some, some way. Did you find that process... Were you very consistent all the way through and you had a very kind of clear way of this is how it's going? Or did you find you were constantly faced with choices between this or that? Now, you touched on it a little with the dates. Outside of the dates, did you find that a challenge? Um, not really, to be honest. Um, because, like I say, one of the frustrating things, I, I do love a good uh, historical novel. Um, and if there's, um, you know, if there, if there's epic battles and all that, that's fine. I've no objection to that. But, you know, sometimes you read something that's really interesting, but you've no way of knowing if that's based on any truth. And it just drives me mad, you know. So um, in writing the book, it was, I wrote it with curiosity as well, I suppose. So like I say, um, you know, it, it, the, the novel starts in Mead, but it transitions then to Dublin. And like that, we were saying at the outset, I kind of had the X-ray specs on again, and it was walking those streets in my mind and, uh, you know, thinking about what would have been where, and how somebody would have experienced this or that. And I did a lot of research on as I was going on. And initially, I actually started, I was, <laughs> for the first couple of chapters, I had full footnotes for everything. Um, now, what I, what I will do, we'll be doing over the coming months, month is, is sort of, not the full footnote treatment, but I'll be putting up short essays on each chapter on my website, and that will have all the references and why I've made the, the, the various decisions. And I want to do that just for the, you know, because it's all there. I'd like to just put it down on paper. And it, it was a really interesting experience. So I, by no means I'm not going to stand over the novel as a, a, an academic work. And I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of errors. Um, the linguistic side of things was really challenging. 
And I would have started off the first draft of the book would have had a lot of different names and names spelled in a more faithful way to the Irish at the time. And really, you know, it just wasn't viable. People, publishers were picking it up and just saying, you know, I, I don't know what that's supposed to sound like and people aren't going to engage with that. So um, I suppose that's one area where, yeah, I had to make a lot of compromises. And there's a lot of Irish peppered through the book. There's a lot of Norman French, a bit of Latin, that kind of thing. Um, and I, re- I opted in the end just to go with more modern, more or less modern Irish, um, just so that people who had some sort of, people who have a knowledge of the language would be able to interact with it a bit more than if it was um, an older form of Irish. And it, also that would have been something beyond my, um, you know, my comfort zone as well. Yeah, for sure. No. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it dances that line very nicely. And you're right as well. I mean, when you're kind of reading some of these books, I mean, uh, we worked together in Australia for a while. And we had quite a few conversations around Patrick O'Brien and his oh, series. Yeah. And I th- one of the things that is, you know, not only are the great series of novels, but the detail in them is yeah. phenomenal, you know, and that kind of... You know, sometimes when you're reading a book that's set in a period that you might have a an idea or two about, and there's routine clangers being dropped right, left, and centre, it pulls you out of the story. Now, you know, I have to say, I have not found a single clanger. Not that I'm looking for them as such, but this is all very accurate stuff um, in your book. Uh, so, no, I, I I can see what you're saying with the uh, and talking about Patrick O'Brien. You know, that's what twenty novels. There's an unfinished 21st. Can, can we hope for a, an extended series following this whole story? Uh, or have you kind of th- planned that far ahead at the moment? Do you know what's coming next? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the great benefit of writing this period of history is that, you know, the story is already there. I just need to follow along. So I suppose I started out saying that I was trying to write the story of Hugh Lacey in the the Abbey engine or the Cathar Crusade in the south of France in the early 1200s. Um, so I have a ways to go in terms of narrative before I can set foot on French soil. So um, all going well, absolutely, yeah, I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll keep going with this. Um, it's really, really enjoyable to do. And um, yeah, so that's, that's the, the hope. Well, that's it. And, and you know, I think... You know, we talked about reconstruction drones and we're talking about a novel now. I think a TV series is the next thing that we need to think about. That'll pose its own challenges. But uh, should we got this? Only if I get a starring role. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But no, I mean, honestly, I think, um, you know, going back to what we were talking about at the start, that archaeology is storytelling. And it is, you know, when you're interpreting something, you're trying to tell a tale. And within that tale, uh, you have to make decisions about is it like this or is it like that? And the evidence could be ambiguous in a lot of ways. And I think the more, if I could bring anything into like an archaeological degree, you know, that when people are studying, it would be that they should do fictional accounts based on evidence from site reports, you know, because I think it will really help people to consider the people interacting and living in the landscape rather than just this kind of more um we have these fragments of objects yeah bits and pieces because you know if, if you go into uh, i don't know if, if you've ever been 
left, say, uh, if you find a box that was left by your grandfather in the shed and there's a few bits and pieces, well, you know him as a person, you can tell that story, but somebody a hundred years down the line, they're just bits, you know? And, yeah. I, and I think that uh, that exercise of trying to give them the context and bring life into it is a really interesting one. And, and this book, I think, is a fantastic one. I'm hoping to see a lot more books, not just from you, from, from others as well, but I'm hoping this series will continue. So, Paul, could you tell us, where can people find out a bit more? You mentioned your website, though. Where, where can people go to find that? Yeah, well, I have um, links up on my website, which is pauldoffywritings.com. Mm-hmm. And um, the publisher of the book is uh, based in Philadelphia in the States, and they're called uh, Kimren Press, C-Y-N-R-E-N.com. Fantastic. And I'll put links to all of this on our website, on aboutheritage.ie, on the episode for the show notes. I'll put links of, of this and other things as well um, to help bring this to life, because I can't recommend it highly enough. I think if you have any interest in Medieval Island, and I'm sure uh, all of our listeners are interested in Medieval Island at this stage, otherwise why are they listed? <laughs> you know? um, but no, I strongly recommend that you pick up a copy of this book. It's so interesting, and it's such a pivotal time in Irish history as well. So, yeah. Uh, it, it, oh, that's re- really appreciated. And uh, it would be remiss of me not to say that you're talking about storytelling in Irish archaeology and yourself and the crew at Abarta to our end. Um, are at the top of that particular pyramid. So well done on all that work. Uh, you're very good. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> no worries. Listen, uh, thanks a million for joining me, Paul, and hopefully we'll be on for the second edition as well in the not too distant future. Because I want to I want to keep following the story. <laughs> so that's it for this episode of Amplify Archaeology. I just want to thank Paul again for all of his time and insights. I loved as you can tell I love chatting to him about this. It's a subject I'm particularly interested in that how we go about telling stories of the past using the real evidence. I just think it's magic to see uh, a fictional book like this set in 12th century Ireland with some of these big characters that we might be familiar with like Tina Narok and Hugh de Lacey and, and, and people like that all told through the eyes of a slave it, it's fascinating it's a compelling book and I think you know once you, you have a read of it yourselves you'll have a completely different view in some ways of what this period of Irish history was like it's a real success so well done to Paul you can find a link to where to go and pre-order or purchase the book on our website, on our show notes at abarterheritage.ie. You can also keep up with Paul at paulduffywritings.com and I recommend visiting there as well. If you're looking to explore more of Ireland's wonderful heritage this year, if you want to go visit some of our incredible archaeological and historical sites, and particularly places that are that little bit further off the beaten track, ones that you wouldn't find on any of the big kind of national websites on tourism and so on, you might want to join our new membership service called Tour. In there you'll find lots of articles on places to visit, You'll find itineraries for places like Connemara or the Causeway Coast or the Dingle Peninsula. Um, Lots of different kind of places like that, full of sites that you will love to see. Some of the big name ones and some of those little secret places that are absolutely stunning. 
We also have online courses like an introduction to Irish archaeology or virtual tours with experts like Dr. Damien Shields, who takes us on a tour of Vinegar Hill in Wexford, or Isabel Bennett, who shows us some of her favourite sites on the Dingle Peninsula. You also have access to exclusive webinars and tours and talks. There's loads of content there, and you can find it all at tour.ie, T-U-A-T-H-A. But for now, I want to thank you all for listening. If you have the time, please do tell a friend or leave us a review or share the podcast. I really appreciate that. That'd be fantastic. But for now, thank you. Goodbye and take care. Good luck. Good luck.